sentiment, whether it's some um, consumer or uh, investor indicators have lost a little bit of their validity in my view, in the last several years. I started in the business in 1993. So it's about 30 years. I've watched three, three big cycles come through. I hate to say, I hate to inject a little politics into the sentiment indicators, but because we've become such a divisive country on the political front, it's that when people are asked questions about economics and you know pocketbook issues, even if they're doing well, depending on what side of the aisle they're Instead of it being sort of a 55-45 split, it's become this 90-10, 95-5 split. And both sides do it. And so it's it's I think it's thwarted a little bit of the effectiveness of sentiment indicators. Welcome back to Investing Experts Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by James Ford, founder of the Pragmatic Investor Investing Group. Today, I had the pleasure of talking to Lawrence Fuller. He's a contributor on Seeking Alpha and owner of the Portfolio Architect Investing Group. He has over 25 years of experience managing individual clients' portfolios, and he is very knowledgeable when it comes to macroeconomics and fundamental value investing. Now, we talked about a lot of things, including the recent uh, Fed policy, uh, the recent Fed hikes, talked about everything in macro. Lawrence has a bit of a what you might call a contrarian view, though I strongly agree with some of his points, whereby we might actually achieve that soft landing. So he's actually quite bullish. And we even talked about a specific stock that he is very bullish on, which is Gannett, which is has the stock ticker GCI. Please go ahead and check out Lawrence's profile on Seeking Alpha. You won't be disappointed. And if you like the content, you can also check me out on Seeking Alpha, The Pragmatic Investor, where I also write regularly on macro, crypto, commodities, and many different stocks. And of course, you guys can subscribe and like. It would be a great help. As always, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. All right, welcome back. And I'm joined today by Lawrence Fuller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, James. All right, so we've got we've had quite an interesting week in markets. Um, obviously, we had that Fed meeting with that twenty five uh, rate hike. We've also had a lot of movement in regional bank stocks with some more bank failures coming in. So definitely a very interesting time. Let's begin by dialing in with a, a simple question: um, Do you think that was the last rate hike? Has the Fed paused? I, I yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think absolutely. I mean, the I don't think they needed another rate hike, but but the Fed typically does what the market expects. In particular, this chairman, Chairman Powell, who's very market friendly, as we know, or has been mm -hmm. over the past five years. So if, um, you know, I, I just use the, uh, the Fed funds futures as a guide for where short term rates are going to be. And if the, you know, if the market, uh, for, if let's say, given all this bank, regional bank turmoil, we saw Fed fund futures predict, you know, uh, uh, a 75% chance there'd be no rate hike. I don't think the Fed would have raised rates. Mm -hmm. So they really kind of operate, uh, let the market guide them. And in the very short term, but in the long term, they still play this rhetoric game, which is where they want to try to manage expectations. They don't want, they don't want uh, the market or consumers for that matter to be, be concerned that prices are not going to come down. So they, you know, these Fed governors are deployed like soldiers to go out and give uh, uh, speeches and talk about how they're going to remain vigilant and they're going to keep raising rates and they're going to hold them higher for longer. But if you look at where, for example, the two-year Treasury yield is, it's plunged mm -hmm. from, you know, over five to now in the high threes. That's telling you 
the Fed's going to cut rates. Uh, mm-hmm. They may not know it yet or want to admit it, but they'll probably be cutting rates. I hope they don't cut rates too soon because that would mean we're really having some serious economic stress. But I think they'll be able to gradually lower rates as we get into, the, into the, let's say, the fourth quarter of next year because mm-hmm. inflation is coming down closer to target. We're, you know, we're skirting with very low, below trend growth in the economy. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, definitely. You talk about that uh, those Fed funds futures, and a lot of uh, it does seem the market does seem to be already pricing in Fed, you know, a substantial amount of Fed uh, rate cuts already this year. Is that yeah. then? Where, would you agree with that assessment? Like you say, that even if they don't know it, they are going to be forced to cut. Yeah, and, and you know, people will uh, a lot of the a lot of the bear the bear consensus out there will will argue. Um, uh, that they're going to keep have to keep rates higher, but you know if you go back to when they first started raising rates, mm-hmm. uh, when short term when 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 Fed funds was zero, the very short term Treasury yields were soaring, and mm-hmm. well in anticipation of of a huge a significant spike in in Fed funds rate, and they at that time were denying that they were going to have to raise rates much at all. So you know they're really that's almost the reverse situation, but it's the same thing playing out where. They're going to follow the market. Powell's going to listen to the market, but they're not going to admit to it um, because, you know, they don't want to cause a panic. But they also they always want to manage expectations. And, they're, and, and as far as inflation is concerned, expectations is half the game. And they seem to be fairly contained at this point. Um, mm-hmm. You look at, at uh, you know, five year, 10 year inflation expectations, even three year. They're coming down, maybe not so much in the, the next 12 months, but but they will. So, you know, I'm not I'm not too concerned. Okay, so in terms of inflation, you don't see that being a problem moving forward. I, 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 you know, I said, no, I said, I said since uh, since last summer that I thought the rate would would fall as fast as it rose. So in about eighteen mm-hmm. months, we went from two. It depends. You can talk about the CPI or or uh, the PCE, which is what the Fed focuses on. But if you just use the CPI, we went from two to nine point one in June of last year. And if you look at the uh, the deceleration in the rate, the decline in the rate, it you know we're about halfway through uh, nine months now, and we're, we've cut the rate in half. And so I think we you know we'll get in this argument. Well, we need to be at two percent. Mm-hmm. Um, what's funny is is that if you go back a decade, when uh, we came out of the the, uh, the housing crisis, the great financial crisis, the Fed was battling to get inflation up to 2%. Right, they never yeah. could. They never mm-hmm. could. So they were talking about, well, we want to we want to be in a range. We want to get sort of within an average of 2%. Mm-hmm. And I think that as we come down, uh, uh, Powell will change his tone and talk about, we want to see an average of 2%, which means if we're a little over, it's okay, because if we go into another Another down economic downturn, we're going to fall below two, and so if we smooth out over the long term, and we have so that, I think that's why we can get down to below three, and mm-hmm. um, you know, and that will that will be enough for the Fed to to, to be comfortable again. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and now as we were talking before, you would call yourself a little bit of a contrarian, obviously. I think bear sentiment is quite high right now. I was actually uh, showing my subscribers some charts where. Uh, like uh, short positions are actually at all-time highs, which you know, um, you know, maybe not that's not not that surprisingly, it, it often acts as a as a kind of a signal that the it's time to buy. 
Yeah, I mean the the um, you know, unfortunately, I think the contrary the, the sentiment, whether it's some um, consumer or uh, investor uh, indicators, have lost a little bit of their validity, in my view, in the last several years. And I, I mean, I I started in the business in 1993, so it's about 30 years. I've watched three three big cycles come through, and um, what. I hate to say, I hate to inject a little politics into the sentiment indicators, but because we've become such a divisive country on the political front, mm-hmm. instead of instead, when people are asked questions about economics and you know pocketbook issues, even if they're doing well, depending on what side of the aisle they're on, they're either, instead of it being sort of a 55-45 split, it's become this 90-10, 95-5 split. Mm-hmm. And um and both sides do it. And so it's, it's, I think it's thwarted a little bit of the effectiveness of sentiment indicators. And how in the world do you explain you know, all-time low unemployment rate, uh, phenomenal weight, we have very good, very strong wage growth, um, and, and, and consumer sentiment that's not much higher than it was, you know, post-great financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have tremendous amount of wealth out there. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that at least on the consumer side, people would be so negative. I understand mm-hmm. the inflation, but, um, you know, the, the, the thing that, that people don't recognize is that while inflation was rising, so were incomes. Mm-hmm. So we didn't spend a whole lot of time where people were, were necessarily, uh, uh, I mean, I know there's always there's always going to be certain cases, certain demographics suffer a lot more than others. But but in in a in a, in a broad sense, people have had phenomenal wage growth, especially actually the lowest quartile, the, the right. lowest wage income earners have earned the, have, have realized the highest wage gains. They've also received the largest amount of of, of physical stimulus funds, and so mm-hmm. that really offset the the spike. And now that that inflation is coming down. Um, you know, those wage gains are holding up the cash, the surplus excess cash out there is still, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, declining, but it's still helping support, support spending, which is why we've averted a recession. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely a little bit different this time in that sense that, you know, people are talking about that kind of a, more of a white collar crisis, nowhere you get the people yeah. in the tech space, uh, losing their mm-hmm. jobs rather than more, um, you know, general, uh, layoffs. So in terms of this recession, which you know they're, they're calling now the most anticipated recession, you know of all of all time, you yeah. would then believe that there is we've avoided the recession, that it's not coming anytime soon, or that it's going to come eventually. But I mean, well, I guess a recession will always come eventually. But it always comes eventually. Yeah, I mean, I I just don't see, you know, the recessions that, that um, uh. I'm trying to think that the first recession I, I experienced was in 91 coming out of school and not being able to find a job and not understanding why, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other ones were obviously bubbles. We had a tech bubble, uh, a lot of overinvestment in, in, in that industry. And, but that was a relatively mild consumer recession. And then obviously the housing bubble. But if you look at this particular cycle, what's so different about it is that you go back to, to you know, the pandemic really, through a monkey wrench and everything. But we had all these bubbles if you went back to uh, pre-pandemic days and they kind of burst one by one, but not simultaneously. Now we had a bubble in cryptocurrencies. That was a $2 mm-hmm. trillion dollar industry, it burst. 
Um, Mm -hmm. We had a bubble in SPACs. Uh, We had a bubble in, you know, different parts of the market at different times um, deflated without, Mm -hmm. instead of, instead of money, instead of, you know, it creating a panic and a, and a a trigger, a a trickle effect across markets, it sort of was like whack-a-mole. And so we, Mm -hmm. we took out these, these excesses one by one over time. And even we're doing the same thing now with the housing market, but you know, the the thing about the housing market prices and and rents soared and housing prices got a little bit insane again, but there's no supply. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's holding prices up and they're deflating in terms of their, their, uh, their increases on a year over year basis, but they're not declining in any way that people are going to get concerned or feel that they've lost Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of wealth, you know? So, uh, I, I think the recession comes, but we need to see, um, you know, I, I don't really even see a recession next year. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this is, I think this is sort of a, a mid-cycle slowdown is what it is. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, you know, you talk about soft landings and the last one we had was arguably in the mid 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just started in the financial, financial business at that point. I really didn't even know what a soft landing was. But um, but it it seems like we're that's what we're due for this time around, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but recessions are a lot about psychology, and the only thing I get worried about is that 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 this bearish consensus becomes so dominant that they start to sway the way consumers respond, and up mm-hmm. to that point, it hasn't happened yet. And then also. You know, the businesses that I talk to, some are struggling. I talked to a good friend of mine who is working with a trucking company and they're having a horrible time. And that's that's a very difficult industry right now. You look at other businesses and, you know, look at look at like the restaurant business, you know, and, and, and they're they're doing extremely well. Um, you know, I go to hotel. I've been traveling a lot last month. I've been in hotels, been in airports, been in restaurants, bars, packed. Packed. You know, it's just not. It's not what you typically see when you're on the cusp of an economic downturn. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It does kind of clash a lot with uh, basically what you what we've been seeing lately in the financial media, especially when it comes to banks, right? Because that's also yeah. kind of a psychological uh, element to it. So we've had yeah, a lot I, of uh, people concerned about the bank, well, cons- and rightfully so, right? Because we have had some yeah. of the uh, some of the regional banks obviously struggle following those. Um, all those rate rate hikes. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you feel that fits in? I mean, are you concerned about this at all? How do you think it fits into the uh, the upcoming months? Yeah. Well, if it was a credit crisis, I'd be really concerned, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's a liquidity crisis, and it's it's a liquidity crisis for a handful of banks that didn't do a great job, uh, you know, managing their assets and their liabilities, their balance sheets, and mm-hmm. you know, you could even. Take a heavyweight like Schwab, for example, is really struggling because of the, um, um, you know, the withdrawal of deposits. People were, were had money in their investment accounts earning zero, and all of a sudden somebody told them, "Wow, you can earn four percent at SoFi on a, on a money market fund, and they'll insure you up to two million dollars." Well, they'll pull their money out and put it there. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's it's and credit conditions are going to tighten as a result. Of, they're already tightening as a result of this, which is another reason that the Fed is done raising interest rates but um i don't i don't yet see it as as something that's going to be the trigger for a downturn i, I don't like the way the the the, the fed 
didn't acknowledge, Sharon Powell didn't do a great job of acknowledging the issue. It kind of swept mm -hmm. it under the rug, said everything's right. fine. I had this this scary um, deja vu about when Bernanke said subprime is contained, you know, <laughs> got me a mm -hmm. little nervous. But it's a different issue. It's like I said, it's not a credit issue. So, uh, you know, First Republic's gone. Well, J.P. Morgan swoops in, basically takes over. Nothing's really changed. Deposits are all recovered. Uh, lending continues. But but again, the, 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 there's going to be a, a tightening in lending standards, obviously. But I think that, um, um, yeah, it's something we just have to watch. It's it's a, it's. It's it's a it's a leading indicator, but it has to result in some other factors in order to see a contraction in economic activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's say then, and I, I kind of agree to a certain extent, of course, that uh, we are you know entering perhaps a more bullish market in equities. Uh, where do you think is is the place to be? Where are the where are those gains going to be found in the next cycle? Um. It, it's um. It's a, I think that you can't really, I think first off, it depends on your time frame, right? I mean, I, I, I could say that mm -hmm. um, text, you know, the, the, the bears will criticize the breadth of this rally and say that it's only being led by a half a dozen text, the big mega cap tech stocks. Mm -hmm. And that would right. be accurate. That'd be accurate over the last three months. Mm -hmm. But if you went back six months, you'd see that the rest of the market is what was driving the gains off the October low, we had phenomenal breadth in the market. Mm -hmm. And then that, that breadth started to wane a bit and the big mega cap tech stocks have been lagging behind. And all of a sudden they've really, if you look at it, they've caught up in the last three months. It's not as though they led, they were, they were, they were catching up with the rest of the market. Mm -hmm. So now I think that in order for us to, to sort of break out of this, this range we've been in on the S and P um, 4,000 to 4,200 or so, um, you know the, the the mega cap tech names need to pass the baton to the the remainder mm -hmm. of the market. We need to see breadth start to improve. That's mm -hmm. something I'm I'm anticipating because you know earnings, which uh, the end of the first quarter, um, you know the consensus view is S and P earnings would decline about six point seven six point eight percent, and you know we're a little more than halfway through now, we're more than halfway through now, and that 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 decline is narrowed by 50%. You know, it's closer to three three and change. And so earnings are coming in a lot better than expected. And, and the other the other uh, issue that that um, bears are pointing to is that when we get these earnings reports, analysts are going to start to lower their their forward projections a year out dramatically. Mm -hmm. That's not happening. Uh, yeah. The, mm -hmm. the next quarter is coming down, but next year is actually turning up. So mm -hmm. margin margins are holding up a lot better than um, than I think they were expecting, you know, and that's 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 a positive for the market. So mm -hmm. that's why I'm staying staying invested and staying. Uh, I, you know, I'm not looking for a, a new all time high in the hundred, but I think you have to view it mm -hmm. as, as view it as an uptrend, even if it's a modest one. Yeah, absolutely, and I agree with a lot of what you said there. Especially, I recently uh, talked about the idea that, uh, like you say, that perhaps we will get uh, some of the uh, some of the other assets catching up in this phase. So perhaps maybe yeah. um, seeing something like the Russell two thousand maybe uh, outperforming a little bit. Would you agree with that? To an well, extent? yeah, it, it it was outperforming off. You mm. know, the the Russell bottomed in June of last year, well before the S and P, and it turned up, right. which was a leading indicator 
coming out of the October low that the mm. market was, you know, getting a lot healthier. And mm-hmm. it's since it's since lagged largely because of there's a big financial waiting in, in the Russell 2000s. That's obviously uh, hurt the index with a lot of the smaller banks struggling. And um, um, but also you've got highly leveraged companies in there. And, mm-hmm. and there's been a real uh, sell off in especially consumer cyclical type names that are that are that are anything that's leveraged because the cost the cost of money is going up dramatically. So that weighs on the Russell. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think if you if you like if, if you're a long term investor and you're looking out over the next couple of years to put money to work, it, it sounds crazy. But the financial sector is a great place to do it. Uh, and right. you don't go and you know, you don't go and speculate on pack West. Hope it goes from five mm-hmm. to seven. OK, right. um, but you buy the money center banks, you know, you buy the Bank of America's J.P. Morgan's, you buy the leaders um, that are that are really at, at um, I mean, in fact, I saw something last week that showed the regional bank index now on a price to book basis is right where it was during the great financial crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when General Electric had a credit rating equivalent to Vietnam. That's how bad it was. Bank of America stock had gone from 50 into the single digits. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are on a valuation basis for the regional. So, you know, if you don't want to pick a regional, there's obviously there's the um, the KRE, the regional bank index, where you don't have to worry about picking the wrong name. And now, I mean, you know, I think that that is a, the, the lowest risk long term investment you can make in the market right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, otherwise, I'm a you know I'm a value investor. I I, I try to. I try to buy. I try to find out names that are out of favor, that are extreme discounts to intrinsic value, and I'm very patient and uh, pick my spots and try to build positions. I, I um, so that's that's. I'm not an. I'm not someone who invests in just in the S and P or the Russell 2000. I don't do any index investing, but I just keep mm-hmm. sort of a view. I'm, I'm you know I'm optimistic on the index, or um, or I, I you know I think it's overvalued and I'm bearish on the index, mm-hmm. but. Um, that doesn't mean I'm investing in that particular index, you know. Mm-hmm. No, definitely, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if there was ever a time to buy when there's blood on the streets, now now would be, now would be the time. I think with it, when it comes to yeah, the banks, you can be early, but uh, it's it's uh, it's always worked in the past, you know. <laughs> so absolutely. And before we started this conversation, we were actually uh, you were telling me about a, a specific name that you uh, that you're quite a. Yeah. Quite invested in or quite attached to, uh, which recently reported earnings. I just yeah, looked at yeah. it a moment ago. It um, gave gave us a nice post earnings pop of about twenty percent. Well, it was actually a, a, a that was recovering a twenty percent uh, decline on the day of earnings. Um, oh, I, so I got to correct that, but you know it's Gannett, and um, yeah, I've been uh, uh, written on the stock uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years, and it's it's my mm-hmm. largest holding. It's a two dollar stock. Um, you know, you might call it speculative, but um, it's a very, it's a small cap stock, but it's, uh, you know, it's the largest uh, print newspaper company in the country, but it's in the midst of a, uh, what's the, now going on three year transition into the digital world. Okay. And, and so, you know, my investment thesis is sort of following the line that this company is following the lines of uh, the New York Times in its transition from 2010 to 2020. Uh, where you know the Times was a single digits uh, single digit stock six seven eight nine dollar stock that went to fifty in its mm-hmm. transformation and it basically did that by 
cutting costs, eliminating its debt, and you know, growing net income, growing cash flow, and becoming the the the, the digital powerhouse that it is today. And, and so Gannett is in the third year of that process, and um, they've had uh, they had to endure the pandemic the first year, uh, right. then they had to endure the recession. <laughs> And they had to endure a, a huge spike in in, uh, in input costs of paper and ink, which um, hit them tremendously hard last year. And now they're finally on the cusp of turning things around. I hope, hope hopefully, we're good. Mm-hmm. But every quarter they pay down more debt, um, and uh, they're uh, reducing costs. And they're becoming a more efficient operation, and they're growing digital revenues. I think when I started investing in the company, it was less than. It's about 24% of their business with digital revenue. Now it's up to 37%. So it's uh, it's one of these names that I'm very comfortable holding for the long term because I think I'm going to earn multiples of you know multiples of the price today in you know in the coming years. So uh, no, I'm, I'm looking at the stock. I mean, the valuation looks good. I, I like the narrative. That's Gannett stock ticker is GCI for anyone uh, listening to this. Um, now, in terms of the comp, it, it does seem like it's quite a competitive market. No, the, the digital media. I mean, do, do you ever well, have concerns it, about the way it's going? I mean, nowadays people just want stuff for free. How are they monetizing exactly? Well, they they, they have um they they've got there's two pieces to their well actually there there was two pieces now there's a third piece to their puzzle but they you know they have a uh, an enormous footprint across the country they have um, local papers in 48 states. Mm-hmm. And uh, that all have digital platforms now. The biggest is USA Today and USA Today Sports mm-hmm. Network. And um, so they they've they've acquired about two million digital subscribers, and that growth rate has slowed for slowed down a bit. I'll explain why in a second. And then they also have uh, a business that's actually unrelated, which is people are really not aware of, and it's called their digital marketing services business or services unit, DMS for short. Um, but this is a um, this is a business that that basically services about fifteen thousand small medium sized companies and helps build helps them build an, uh, an internet presence and mm-hmm. uh, provides them all sorts of tools. Sort of operates as a software as a service company um, where uh, you know you can choose from a menu as far as which services you're going to buy and you, you know there's a it's a recurring revenue stream for Gannett. But mm-hmm. it's not really it only it operates as a separate business, but it's under the umbrella of Gannett. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the largest companies in the country of its size. It's doing nearly five hundred million a year in revenue, about sixty bit sixty million in EBITDA, double digit margins, and growing. And mm-hmm. if you if you were to have that company on its own, it would probably be trading in the neighborhood of three to four times sales, which would still be a low valuation. Uh that would value the company somewhere between one and a half to two billion dollars. Mm-hmm. The enterprise value of Gannett today is is less than one point five billion dollars. Okay. So so this this business, I think that they are looking for different ways to monetize, either by spinning it off, perhaps selling it, retaining a percentage of the business. But it has tremendous growth potential, and it's just not it's not being reflected in the company. Um, so. That's the real gem inside of Gannett that no one fully understands. The other, the other thing that's that's really exciting about what they're doing is that while they only have two million digital subscribers, and that 
you know, that, that produces something in the neighborhood of 140 million in revenue for them every year. They have about 190 million eyeballs on their digital platform every month. So, you know, if you think about what everyone's trying to do with, with social media, we're trying to, everyone wants to monetize their followers. Mm-hmm. Right. If, if you had a million followers on Instagram or I had a million followers on TikTok, we could make a tremendous amount of money selling products. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what Gannett is doing is they're taking 190 million eyeballs on their digital platform and they're setting up affiliate deals with different companies that want to access those spots. I'm going to call them followers, but you know, people that are on their sites and they're not paying Gannett anything, but that's a huge, tremendous value that's that's being mm-hmm. it's not being uh, realized. So, uh, to date, just just since the beginning of the year, they've signed deals with Gambling.com, which is you know uh, also a publicly traded company. Um, they they basically provide you know information, odds, all sorts of data for gamblers that might then want to go to a DraftKings or one of the other gambling companies, open a gambling account, start gambling. So what gambling.com wants to do or is doing now is advertising on Gannett's platform. And so if, if one of the 190 million eyeballs comes to a Gannett platform, clicks on gambling.com for information on a game they want to bet on, opens an account at DraftKings, gambling.com now, splits the revenue that they they receive from DraftKings with Gannett. Okay. Right. And that, that's an affiliate deal. And they've done the same thing when which is probably going to be a much larger scale with Forbes Marketplace, which is which is mm-hmm. selling financial services to consumers. And they provide, you know, Forbes Forbes Marketplace will if you want to want to, for example, you want expert reviews of insurance policies or some other kind of financial product, it's the same situation. If if a consumer that is on a Gannett platform, clicks the link for his marketplace, buys a, buys a product, they then share the revenue with Gannett. And so during the earnings conference call, uh, CEO Mike Reed talked about two other, two other um, affiliate deals he's working on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very, very general, uh, one, in, one in the education sector, one in the, uh, the, the home, home building industry of some sort, home building, housewares. I'm not sure exactly what, what, it, what it, it will be. So he's, you know, as they rack these up, this is no cost, no overhead revenue mm-hmm. for Gannett. And mm-hmm. it's pure profit right to the bottom yeah. line. So mm-hmm. we're going to find out in the coming quarters how much of a revenue stream this is. And I think that's one of the reasons that they, the guidance is extremely conservative. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they beat, they beat, they were looking uh, the consensus was for them to lose money. They ended up earning uh, had net income of ten million for the quarter, and then they raised their guidance very modestly for the coming quarter, or actually for the coming year. I think they're going to continue to be able to do that as the year goes on. So, so hopefully, we build some upward momentum in stock again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, everything you say makes makes a lot of sense. I guess this idea that Gannett just has this very valuable asset, which is that kind of captive audience, you no, know? and now it's just a matter of them monetizing it. Yeah, no one views them as a as a. I mean, you you look at the other uh, the other platforms out there and the amount of revenue they they bring in from advertising and uh, uh, this this is another this is another way for them to monetize you know their their business and it's never been viewed that way. So I think it's mm-hmm. it's um 
and, and the, the valuation is, uh, to be honest, absurd. I mean, it's it, this company's being valued as though it's going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a hundred million in cash. They 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 pay down their debt every single quarter. They reduce debt, and uh, and they're going to return to free cash flow, which should be in the neighborhood conservatively of a hundred million this year. Mm-hmm. So you have a market cap of two hundred seventy million dollars. You're an enterprise value of around one point four billion dollars for a company that's doing nearly three billion in revenue, um, and conservatively three hundred million in EBITDA. It's just it's mm-hmm. trading at less than one times. That's that's mm-hmm. that's nuts. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's nuts. I mean, I, I just I don't I don't see a lot of downside in a stock like that with that kind of valuation. Mm-hmm. For me, it's more a matter of time mm-hmm. than than it is you know will it happen. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, we have another pandemic, another Mm -hmm. pandemic, another recession. Okay, I'm gonna have to wait another year. (laughs) (laughs) We can dodge another, you know, another, another, another major market event. I think things will really kick in. So, yeah. So you've thrown a few numbers out there. The stock is currently trading around two dollars, I believe. Is there a particular price target that you would have in mind, or is that not how you think about it so much? Well, I can, you know, I can do. I've done in the in the writings I've done on Seek Alpha. I've done. uh, come up with several several different methodologies for value in the mm-hmm. company. If I, I can, if I price it on cash flow and I project cash flow, um, go back a year before uh, the inflation uh, wiped out free cash flow because they, they incurred about a hundred million dollars in extra costs. From, you know, mostly mm-hmm. due to print and paper. I mean, ink and paper, um, as well as wage costs and things like that. Um, but if you go back a year ago. They were forecasting 40% uh, annualized growth in, in free cash flow going out five years, which would have, or to 2000, let's see, 20, 25, 26, you would have been up in the neighborhood of 300, 350 million in free cash flow. They would have, they would have completely paid off their debt. And I can see the stock trading at $20. Um, that's, that's essentially what the New York Times did. If you look, if you go back and look at the Times from 2010 to 2020, they were carrying, you know, nearly a billion in debt. They had no cash, and they they went through this transformation. The debt was reduced every year. Um, their digital percentage of their overall business rose rapidly. Once it got up close to fifty percent, and the debt got down to a level where net income really took off, exploded. The stock never looked back. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when do when is when you when do investors see that and mm-hmm. then everyone jumps on board you know you, you don't really know when that's going to happen mm-hmm. all you can do is have confidence that it's going to happen I, i've got tremendous confidence it's going to happen i just mm-hmm. it, it would be happening right now like i said if we hadn't if they hadn't been hit with 100 million in additional costs that they mm-hmm. they were anticipating but what they did in the fourth quarter last year is they they cut their operating costs by over 200 million dollars so having both reduced costs and now seeing benefits is the producer price index comes down and and uh, those input costs are falling. They're benefiting in both in both ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I think um, I think that uh, uh, you know conservatively this, I can make an argument to see the stock at eight to ten dollars in the next two years. Oh, that's a, that's a significant return. Who knows? Maybe this uh, this interview will go viral, and that will yeah, really help yeah. uh, get the ball rolling. You know, <laughs> from your lips. Moves before I publish this, though, if if, if that happens. Uh, yeah, you get plenty of time. 
but um no it's 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 a um it's a very interesting story and if you, you go back and, and look at uh the things i've written about it you you sort of get the the, the timeline on the things that have happened to them but, but they were very much on track for well, i think what would have been an eight to ten dollar stock because before before the inflation hit which really struck them in the second in the middle late 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 first quarter of last year the mm-hmm. stock was flirting with seven dollars and mm-hmm. um and and then um they in q2 uh they they incurred a this this huge spike in prices and it they went from projecting 180 million free cash flow to zero in one quarter mm. that was it and that's that sent the stock reeling and you know then we had the October lows and the stock got down to a dollar again and now we're working our way back up. Is that is that something that could happen again though, with like just that yeah. kind of surprise? Well, anything could happen, but I, I think you'd have to have another pandemic or you'd have to have another, mm-hmm. you know, an output something that would they would lead they would lead prices in for their particular <laughs> situation to go back up again. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that they they uh management did uh in response to that increase in input costs is go to much more of a variable cost model where they started to outsource a lot of the things that they were doing in house to reduce costs and, re- and reduce that, that, uh, um, the risk of, of, you know, input prices, uh, mm-hmm. rising on like that again. So, mm-hmm. um, but it's becoming a different company every quarter. I mean, the, cha- the, the new businesses mm-hmm. that they're looking to get into that, uh, new revenue streams. Um, it's, um, it's just, uh, I think, there are no analysts on Wall Street that really cover the stock. Uh, there's a couple that have been assigned to it, and it's an afterthought for them. I mean, they keep sell ratings on the stock, so they don't have to do any work on it. Um, and uh, it's not widely held. I mean, the largest shareholders are Bill Miller, who uh, is a famed uh, value investor, owns about 10% of the, of the shares. Fidelity is now a 10% shareholder, and I think they're an outstanding research shop. They really know what they're doing, and they've gone. They've increased their position to ten percent, uh, and so uh, it, it's you know it's timing is the issue on this one. I don't think it's weather. I think it's it's when. Uh, definitely, you make a compelling case. I've actually been giving this some thought. I've now had a few guests on. Um, first one I had on was uh, another essay contributor, uh, Brett Ashcroft, and he actually gave me a pretty good uh, call on Uber, which recently released earnings had a nice pop there. Yeah. I'm actually thinking about perhaps starting kind of a pragmatic investor podcast portfolio where maybe ah, okay. I get each guest to uh, contribute a stock. Would it be uh, yeah. safe to say that this is yours? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's my largest, it's my largest position, so it has to be. <laughs> <I can't. laughs> All right, well, we'll Uber's still expensive there. for me, though, so I can't, I can't be. But you've got a growth stock and a value stock. It's good. It's good. <laughs> you know? All right. So, well, we've talked a lot about this very specific stock. I would like to know a little bit more about um, just your general investment style and kind of also, obviously, you're on Seeking Alpha. You've got your investing group there. Kind of uh, what you do. Well, just a bit of everything. Just uh, also your you know, and how you got started, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been, uh, I, I, I've been a uh, um, managing portfolios for individual clients for 30 years. I started at Merrill Lynch in 1993 and um, uh, worked at several other firms before starting my own investment advisory firm in 2005 and uh mm-hmm. i started writing on seeking alpha uh, 10 years ago which is shocking and i had a couple maybe a year or two in there where i would fade away and come back to them and stuff but i really 
I, what I like about writing on Seeking Alpha is that it it it's uh, and I and I've done, I used to do it once a week or a couple times a month. To now I do I, I publish my morning brief uh, every day because mm-hmm. it it forces me to keep a pulse on the markets and what's going on in the economy every mm-hmm. single day. I mean, I'm reviewing, I'm reviewing the, the companies and what's going on in the market, but I'm also looking at the economic data every single day and also follow the technicals. So I've got a hand handle on, um, on, uh, you know, as far as my strategic outlook, it, it's, it's not a, it's not a static thing. I mean, it's like a, it's like a big pile of clay and I'm constantly tweaking it based on the incoming data. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I write. And when I write about it, it keeps me honest, keeps me focused. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I'm, you know, if I'm moving off the tracks or moving in the wrong direction, it, it's nice to get feedback, even when it's criticism, right. because it makes yeah. me think about what I'm saying. What am I doing? You know, are these people right? Is someone telling me, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I, it makes me recheck and, and double, double, double take. What, what, am, what am I thinking? How am I doing, doing these, uh, doing things? So I, I love uh, that. Even though it takes a couple hours a day, I love that, that, uh, uh, that exercise, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so my marketplace, you know, my marketplace is uh, basically me putting my investment strategy to work in, in portfolios. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of take it, I, well, I do take an all weather approach. So, okay. You know, I've got exposure to every asset class, sort of a core weighting, um, because as much as I try to figure out what's happening, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, no one is is right, you know, all the time, certainly. But if I'm right 55% of the time, I'm going to be happy. So, you know, when, when, I, when I've got exposure to commodities, for example, like I've got weightings in gold and silver, um, that's been a huge help this year. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought? Uh, you know, right. but I, because I maintain a core weighting there, I'm benefiting from a gold mm-hmm. and silver weighting in some of my, my gold miner positions. Um, you know, I've got in my fixed income, which has been, uh, fixed income has been really tough to manage, but I've been able to, um, avoid losses each year over the last four years and keep positive returns every year just by hedging the portfolio with, uh, inverse interest rate ETFs, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and also keeping a large cash position so I can take advantage of these. You know, the volatility in the bond market has been mm-hmm. greater than that in the stock market the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then on the stock side, um, you know, I'm I'm probably be categorized as a GARP investor, growth at a reasonable price. Okay. Uh, you know, I've got I've got some growth. I mean, I you know, I own I own some tech stocks, some some growth stocks, but I typically focus on the lower multiple names. Mm-hmm. I, I'll never pay ten times sales for anything. That's just sort mm-hmm. of my my number that right. I can't gonna go over. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I, you know, I, I like dividends just like everyone else. So I might have some high dividend stocks, low multiple stocks, but I'll have a handful. And I have, I'm also multi-cap. So I don't really discriminate against one, one, one size of company. Um, and uh, I just manage those allocations in each asset class, sort of like a goal, goal post. So, mm-hmm. you know, my maximum weighting and my minimum weighting, and I'm just, you know, constantly moving the goalposts, you know, overweight mm-hmm. equities, underweight bonds, back and forth, you know. Right. Um, so I, that's, uh, that's what I do. And I do the same thing for my clients and, and then my marketplace uh, subscribers just watch the insanity from day to day and see what they're <laughs> doing. You know, hopefully I, I, they, they, they come up, they call some ideas for their own portfolios, and they also um, mm-hmm. navigate their asset allocations 
in a way that helps them following what I'm doing. So. Mm-hmm. And now we started off talking about the macro as well. I guess that guides you. So you would also, I'm guessing you, you would always stay somewhat invested, but maybe play around with the kind of balance of cash depending on your macro outlook. Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting when you th- when you think about tactical asset allocation. I think people think about just oh, I'm gonna I'm just gonna reduce my stock weighting now from fifty percent to forty percent, right, overnight. Mm-hmm. What well, that, that was. That, that's generally what I like to think I'm doing, but what's what's crazy about it is, is that it, it happens on its own because as markets get overbought, they get overextended. And if you look at a portfolio, let's say you own 40 stocks, you look at your portfolio, you're you're thinking, wow, this, this is really a nosebleed territory. This stock is getting really expensive. And you start mm-hmm. trimming positions right. to call some profits and take money off the table. And the next thing you know, You've generated, you know, you, you've you've reduced your allocation from fifty to mm-hmm. forty just by pulling some money off the table. When the markets get get cheap again, and you follow a lot of individual securities, I've got a watch list of one hundred and fifty stocks that I track. Mm-hmm. Well, if I if I go through my watch list and I see, oh my gosh, there's three names in in the tech sector I want to buy. There's there's four names in the consumer discretionary sector I want to buy. The markets are usually bottoming out because I've got too many things I want to buy. And I put my cash to work and that sort of brings my allocation, you know, my, my, my weighting back up again. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 yeah, it, it, it's, um, happens almost without trying. If you're really, if you're really mm-hmm. following, you know, valuations and what's going on in the macro. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And would you ever use uh, something like option strategies or something like that? <laughs> yeah, I've got a, I've got a, a, a portfolio I started, uh, I think three years ago now. Um, it's the dividend and option income portfolio. So what I, I basically, I, I allocate about ten percent to a position. So I, I maintain about one of the portfolios going up in value nicely. So I may probably have about thirteen or fourteen positions. Ideally, I'm looking for dividend paying stocks, and then I will try to monetize the position by selling puts or selling calls, right? Um, without Exceeding ten percent weighting in uh, in uh, um, in the in that name, so I've got three different ways to, to generate income, and a lot of the names I just keep. You know, if the stocks call away, I look and it pulls back, I buy it back, collect the dividends, and continue to write puts and calls on it. So that's my that's that's a relatively low risk option strategy because mm-hmm. I'm 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 simply you know. Positioning myself as the house and collecting premiums, more or less, from the speculators, which I like. Yeah, that's certainly a, a strategy that has worked well. I know uh, Victor Durganov, who I had on, uh, uses uh, some similar strategies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to try to catch you out here. You did say that you know in your portfolio you have uh, exposure to every asset. Yeah. Would, um, would that include crypto? Uh, <clears throat> the only article I ever wrote uh, on Bitcoin, if you go back, it's funny. I was sharing this with my son, who's uh, 19, was asking me about crypto. Was um, when the Bitcoin ETF came out uh, a little more than a year ago. Bitcoin is around 65,000, and I said, I think that's the top. It's over. <laughs> and I wrote a bear. I wrote my first bearish, bearish article on something. And in retrospect, it looks really smart right now. Um, so. That, that's the only statement I've had publicly about cryptocurrencies. I, I don't, you know, 
I've never seen the value. In it. I, I don't think they have any intrinsic value. And I, I hate to, you know, uh, it's not a form of criticism. I just think that, mm-hmm. I think it's a solution that never had a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, uh, it, it's not, and it's also, it's, for me, it's just not a store of value. I mean, I, you know, if I want to, and especially now with cat, you can earn 45% on cash. It really mm-hmm. makes it difficult because if it's a store of value, I don't, I don't earn interest on it. And, uh, in order for it to go up, to va- go up in value, they need to find other people that think it's worth more and get them to buy it. Mm-hmm. There's no earnings. There's no interest. It's, you know, it. It's worth what everybody collectively thinks it's worth on any given day, which is what troubles me. Because I don't have any way to fundamentally value it other mm-hmm. than it being, I know that it's a, there's a limited amount of it, like gold. Mm-hmm. So we can right. say, okay, you know, what's gold worth? Um, but I've seen re- rationales for it's going to go up because of this, because of that. And, you know, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I don't see any clear, consistent pattern. Mm-hmm. But I do see lots of people on social media that I don't think know anything about anything, marketing it, promoting it, trying to make profits from it, which is a little discouraging. So, okay. sorry, <laughs> I didn't burst, your, and, burst the bubble there. I mean, I hope, <laughs> I'm, I hope I'm proven wrong because, I mean, I want everybody to make money. I mean, I really think um, that... Um, you know, this is this is just uh, the market is something that younger people need to learn about as soon as they can, mm-hmm. because it's uh, it's really, really the best way for people that don't have money to build wealth. And there's really no other better way. You know, mm-hmm. you just have to be disciplined and you have to be consistent. And that's it. You know, mm-hmm. we are our own worst enemies in the world of finance. You know. Yeah, I think in that to that extent, the crypto space does a kind of uh, embody the opposite values in a lot of ways, where it's not about discipline; it's about you know, kind of those trying to get rich quick kind of scheme, just catch a crypto pump and become an overnight yeah. million. Which some a lot people, of people did. A lot of people did. <laughs> very recently, did you have you read about a Pepe coin? That's the new meme coin that I, went up. I, no, I did. I, I'm sure there'll be another right. one in a month, right? <laughs> I probably yeah. <laughs> I mean, that it, something it, ridiculous like people putting yeah. in thousands, making millions. Well, the only problem, the thing that concerns me about it is, is that you know when 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 Bitcoin, the, the majority of people that were buying Bitcoin bought it way after it was you know mm-hmm. in the in the in the tens of thousands. They weren't buying it at five hundred dollars or thousand dollars or twelve. I mean, I remember when it first came out and it you know it, I could have paid a thousand dollars for it and i thought oh this is crazy this is nuts and so you feel stupid when it's a ten thousand twenty thousand thirty thousand but um so a lot of people made money but most people lost a tremendous amount of money mm-hmm. i mean yeah i would say uh 90 you know, of the people that invest in crypto lose money you know mm-hmm. um they don't understand well, what they're what it's that's a, also true a trait of traders i guess though isn't it i think uh, it's true of option traders. It's true to uh, yeah. option speculators. You know, 90% of options expire worthless. That's why it's always better to be a seller. And mm-hmm. if you learn how to sell options, you can make a, a, a lot of money. Uh, it's just that you get that. We all have that, that you know, 
that that urge to to really take a big risk because we could make 10, 50, 100 times our money. Um, but if I talk to crypto investors and I ask them, well, why is this going to go up? They don't yeah. really know. Uh, which is what's you know, if you ask me why Gannett's going to go up, I can tell you, give you a hundred reasons why. I can tell you a hundred reasons why I don't think it's going to go down either, or what what the, what the intrinsic value is. And when you don't have any intrinsic value in an asset, it's like me telling you this pen is is worth you know a dollar today, but it could be worth twenty dollars you know a month from now. Why? I mean, it's you know there's lots of pens, and I, I don't. Mm-hmm. So I don't. I don't. I don't like to invest in things I don't understand, and I don't understand crypto. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, that's 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 the right way to go about it. I mean, obviously, I, yeah. I generally uh, have slightly different views, but obviously, it's it's great to have someone on the show with a uh, with opposing views. I I won't go into details and bore everyone with with my own opinions. Oh no, really? Yeah, I, I want to learn. So I, you know, I'm, if you do a crypto, I'm going to watch it because I'm I'm still trying to understand. You know, if it's going to replace the dollar, for example, or, or you know, we're going to go to a digital world. I sort of understand that, but I still don't see how that happens so rapidly that that it's going to be, you know, it's going to create value. You know, mm-hmm. um, what is it ultimately going to be worth? You know, I mean, there would have to be more coins, and you know, I don't know. But it, another discussion. I'd love to hear what you what you have to say on it. So I hope you do another podcast with somebody else, and I'll watch it and learn. <laughs> well, right. we talked a bit about it with a. Uh with Mike Fay on my episode too. So if anyone's interested, okay. I'll direct, uh, direct you to that one. I will watch it. <laughs> great. Well, it's been great having you. Um, yep. Obviously on Seeking Alpha, um, got your investment group there. Is there anywhere else people can find you? Um, any other way they can reach your content? Uh, most of my, just about all my content is on Seeking Alpha. So I don't, uh, I don't have any other content out there just yet. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, uh, so I'd say if you want to follow me or you want to contact me the you know, email me direct on Seeking Alpha or send me a message and I'll respond to everything that, uh, that comes my way. All right. Well, yeah. Lawrence, it's been great having you on the show. Um, yeah. like I said, thanks a lot for coming on and hey, I hope we you. get start to do it again. Sounds good. Take care. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.